This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. Uh, today is going to be a, both a sad day and, a, and a, still an important day to honor a very dear friend of mine, comrade, and uh, a frequent guest on Voices from the Front Lines, uh, Reese Ehrlich, who just died last week. Uh, I'm also going to be on the line with Peter Shapiro, who worked with Reese at Unity Newspaper, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, Peter, are you on the line also? I am, yes. Great. Sound good. Uh, to make it even more complicated, another dear friend, uh, Jean Yonamara Wing, died, I believe, last week as well, like suddenly in the middle of a phone call. Uh, so trying to put a lot of things in perspective for voices, listeners, and explain how we're going to try to do the show today. Uh, the first thing I'm going to try to frame about the show is that um, I think you know, I, I those of you who listen to the show, I am basically uh, still believe in black nationalism, pan-Africanism, anti-imperialism, and communism. And those ideologies shape not just my work, but the work of my organization in Los Angeles, the Labor Community Strategy Center. And we exist in the real world, and we are doing quite well. We have the Bus Riders Union. We have the Strategy and Soul Movement Center. We're having a big event this Saturday from 10 to 4 at 3546 Martin Luther King Boulevard. We're calling it our uh, revolutionary weekly block parties, and we have food and uh, plants and, and clothes. And uh, I'm, in fact, going to be doing a talk at 2 o'clock called uh, Paul Robeson, the great <laughs> black nationalist, pan-Africanist, and pro-communist, and his uh, lasting legacy today. So we exist in the real world, as have communists throughout the, the United States, which is why the system is so threatened by them, and a particularly successful one was our brother Reese Ehrlich. So, uh, in his later years, uh, he was a very well-known correspondent. He did a book which we talk about called Dateline Havana. Uh, he was on the show several times talking about the, the politics of the Middle East, and, and as you listen to this interview we did, a conversation, uh, he continued to keep his fundamental politics intact. Uh, and I'm going to be talking to Peter as well, who I believe has also, you know, we're sort of having reunions, and we don't know where 
Yeah, we don't know where everybody has been or where they are, but so far it sounds like a lot of us are very proud of the experience. And Peter's written a book on the Watsonville uh, labor movement called Song of the Stubborn 1000, which uh, for years people have said, have you read it, have you read it? So now I will, Peter. Uh, <laughs> no, really, it's, it's, it's gotten nothing but terrific reviews. Um, so, Peter, I'll talk a little bit, or maybe you should start a little bit about just Reese and your direct knowledge. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the LRS. Then we're going to play a little bit of the interview so we hear Reese's voice. And then you and I will just go back and forth. We'll play more of the interview, and then we're going to go to the phones at 818-985-5735, around 340. We want to hear your thoughts about Reese Ehrlich, especially if there's anybody there who knows him, knew him, listened to the show, read any of his books, I would prioritize you in the call-in. So, Peter, how are you doing? Uh, tell us a second, where are you at this very moment politically and in your life? How would you meet Reese? You said you were, Eric. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a retired letter carrier, uh, and I'm active, actually, just before we got on and set up this, this, uh, this uh, call, I was at a, uh, a meeting around uh, uh, single-payer legislation that's uh, been proposed in the California state legislature, and I've been active around that. Um, and I think, you know, I'll just say that COVID-19 has made it all the more obvious how desperately we need to, you know, to give our health care system or non-system in this country a drastic overhaul. Uh, the Not only the irrationality of, you know, tying your access to medical care to your employment. Right. But just the, 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 the racism that's embedded in it, the fact that, you know, here in East Oakland where I live, uh, you know, black and brown people have been two and three times more likely to die of COVID-19 than, than uh, the rest of the population. Uh, and it has a lot to do with just the conditions they live under, but it also has to do with the fact that they've been pretty much systematically walled off from, you know, access to health care. So that's that's what I'm up to. <laughs> and, you know, as far as the league goes, I... You know, I still, I put 13 years of my life into it, and um, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I still think we were on the right track. I just wish we could have kept going. Well, that's a great frame. Uh, I feel very similarly. So th- let me just do a little bit, because we're trying to make our friend, our dear friend, you know, really, uh, Reese, mm-hmm. uh, come to life in context. And, we're you know, we're going to get plenty of Reese in this, but... The first thing to understand for our listeners is that, um, well, in my life, I you know, met my wife, Leanne Hurst, in Mexico, and in our very, uh, the mythology of our romance, at the, on our, not even our first date, but our first time, we're up on the roof in Mexico, and I'm with this very beautiful woman, and as they, she puts her hand on my knee and says, do you think we need to join a new communist party? And I went... <laughs> Well, that's the best pickup line I've ever heard. I don't think so. I don't think so, Leanne. I just come out of weatherman. I come out of prison. I'm not dying to join a new communist party. I've had bad experiences with the Progressive Labor Party. I don't particularly like the Communist Party. She says, Eric, listen, this is different. There's these, you know, and she's a good organizer. She says, you know, you come out of the national movements. You come out of the liberation movements. These, This is... Uh, Communists coming out of the black community, coming out of the Latino community, 
coming out of the uh, Asian Pacific Islander community. I'm not in one, and I'm about to leave socialist feminism, and you have reached the limits of weatherman and those kind of politics. Why not give it a shot? Well, as beautiful as she was and as persuasive as she was, I said, okay, uh, now can we please get to who we are with each other? And anyway, through that long process, I move across the country from Boston to Cambridge to Berkeley. We go to this big event at uh, in, in, I think it was San Francisco. And this, people don't realize, there's 400 people there at a panel of all the different communist groups, right? Uh, the August 29th movement, the Workers' Viewpoint Movement, Marxist Leninist Organizing Committee, the October League, and these uh, Latino workers, I think they were in the Farrah strike, Peter, you know, they were yeah. talking about communism and the Chicano working class and the national question, but they were organizers. And I right away could tell the other groups were not organizing anybody. They were just, you know, I said to Leanne, I think that's a group we're going to join, right? She says, absolutely. And we approached the uh, quietly. We went up to the ATM people at the time and said, we're interested and through a rather clandestine process. We were eventually recruited into the ATM, and out of that, we went into the auto industry. And out of that, in a phenomenal merger, the uh, three national and form organizations, the August 29th movement, overwhelmingly Chicano, some Asian Pacific Islander, and some white, uh, IWK, Iwar Kuhn, and the Revolutionary Communist League, right, which was the, a black communist group that came out of the Congress of African People, with uh, Amiri Baraka being its most um, prominent member, formed a new organization called the League of Revolutionary Struggle, LRS. It was, it was excellent in many, many ways, and it was historic in ways that people cannot fully grasp. Out of that, there was a newspaper called Unity Newspaper. Its editor was Reese Ehrlich. And yeah. as you were saying, Peter, in our little just short pre-call, Reese wanted it to have very high production values, very high literary quality. Articles were edited. <laughs> and, uh, and then they were sold. And I then took the Unity Newspaper, took it in it to the auto factories where I sold communist newspapers. So maybe you could just tell one Reese story, and then we'll frame the conversation with Reese. We'll listen to Reese and me for about 15 minutes, and then you and I'll take most of it to, to keep his life alive and uh, vital in front of everybody's ears and, and eyes. Well, actually, uh, I mean, you mentioned Jeannie Onomura earlier. Uh, she was also an editor of Unity. Yes. I worked on Spirit, then I worked under her. I was the labor editor of the paper. And actually, Eric, I think you and I worked on a lot of articles together that you uh, detailing the struggle that you were leading at GM Van Nuys and the, the boycott uh, of the, the, the Chicano community boycott of uh, GM cars, right. which was a very ingenious strategy that made for some pretty thrilling stories in the paper. Uh, and I believe Reese was editor of the paper when that when that stuff got published. I don't remember yes, exactly exact years his tenure. 
But, um, you know, what I remember about working with him, and I, I actually had encountered Reese uh, some years before. I mean, I think he first became notorious as one of the Oakland Seven, yes, just yes. like seven Berkeley activists who organized Stop the Draft Week, which was really a historic demonstration in October of 1967 where several thousand people just sort of massed in the streets of downtown Oakland and attempted to physically stop the operation of the Oakland Induction Center, where I would later get my pre-induction physical a few years later. Uh, and by basically blocking the street and making it impossible for the busloads full of inductees to get through, and held the streets for several hours. And Reese and his uh, uh, fellow organizers were rewarded with an indictment for conspiracy. Right. A very highly publicized trial, uh, and they were all acquitted. Not only were they acquitted, but one of the jurors, as if they were leaving the courthouse, sort of turned to the defendants and gave him a clenched fist salute. <laughs> so, and Reese was all of 19 years old at the time. Uh, when I was that age, I didn't know my, you know, I didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground. Really, I was quite naive politically, and I would never have had the moxie to do what he did. Um, and then he went from there to being. Uh, uh, kind of a cub reporter for Ramparts magazine, right? Which is where he kind of learned his journalistic trade. And Ramparts, for those of you old timers who remember it, was really uh, the hottest thing in the publishing business for quite for for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, they came out with one expose after another. Uh, this is where uh, Bob Shear launched his career. He later wound up with the L.A. Times, and. Um, they had a brilliant but uh, insufferable alcoholic editor named uh, Warren Hinkle, um, and uh, <laughs> Reese's job, among his jobs, as sort of a lowly fact checker and cub reporter, was to go over to the bar across the street from the newspaper office and try to get Warren Hinkle to sort of leave and come back to the office, <laughs> make sure the magazine got to bed on time. Uh, it was a thankless job, and Warren Hinkle did not appreciate it at all. Um, but I, you know, I didn't encounter him again until uh, uh, he became editor of Unity, and uh, I knew who he was. Um, I enjoyed working for him. I learned a lot about journalism from him, and I think what I appreciated most about him was that he really tried to make the paper something that people would want to read rather than, you know, a political organ of some left organization, which is usually very kind of didactic and, and, and uh, you know, uh, <laughs> preachy and so forth. He, he wanted to make it entertaining, too, without sacrificing any of the political analysis. And I think that's a special talent that he had, which is apparent in a lot of the work that he did later on when he was a foreign correspondent. Well, why don't we hold it right there, Peter? I think that's great. Now, in the introduction you're about to hear, and I just realized, I went back and listened to it today, uh, it turns out that the, the, this is in November of 2020, right before the election, right before what we're talking about, so it must be whatever, you know, a couple of days before the election, where we're hoping to hell for a Biden victory. Uh, the introduction gets cut off a little bit. So I just want to say one more thing before I get to, to, the, to frame this sound you'll hear. Um, I called Reese, I don't know, uh, don't know even why, and you know, just because I was looking for a good guest, and I said, "Hey, Reese, uh, you haven't been on a while. Would you like to come on?" And he said, "Sure, I'd love to." And I wanted him to talk about because I was already very worried about Biden's hawkishness towards China, Russia, 
you know, and the bipartisan imperialism of the election. And he said, well, my voice isn't so great. He didn't indicate, I think he probably was already having chemo or something, but he didn't indicate any other problem. So luckily I had him on is the point. And I've, I've gone back and forth about why I'm going to play my sort of introduction to it, and I want to explain. Um, voices is a conversation. It's not an interview. Uh, as you'll see as the conversation goes on, much more of it turns to Reese, and much more of it I'm just asking him direct questions. But because I don't always know where my guests are, even though I know Reese pretty well, I always want to assert my own sort of politics in this so it does establish itself as a conversation. So I went back and forth about should I play my three or four minute intro, but with that, I'm going to. The other thing is that I don't, it gets cut off as I'm about to introduce him. So let me explain. Uh, this is my friend Reese Ehrlich. He is the author of Dateline Havana. He was in. Stop the Draft Week, which I said on the sh on the show was 1965. You'll hear he corrects me. Uh, I also gave credit to a guy named Peter Kinzer, and he wanted to make it very clear that Peter Kinzer only wrote the introduction. Uh, so even in the beginning, there's a little, uh, you know, jockeying for clarity. But he's a phenomenal person, and with that, let's listen to Eric talking to Reese, and then hopefully about we'll do 15 minutes and let Reese stretch out a little bit, and then we'll... D'Angelo, I'll give you a signal, and we'll just cut it off at a certain point, and then we'll go back to me and uh, Peter, and then we're going to go to the phones at 818-985-5735. Okay, with all this introduction, Brother Reese Ehrlich in conversation with Brother Eric Mann. Hello. Reese? Yeah, I'm sorry. Say again? I said, was that enough of an introduction oh, to put you well, on every got, single— I've got, I've got uh, hours and hours more that we can add, but sure, that's fine. Just a quick couple of corrections. Um, Kinzer wrote the introduction to Dateline Havana, and uh, Stop the Draft Week was in 1967. But the gist of what she said was absolutely true, and today I am an adjunct professor in international studies at the University of San Francisco, as well as a columnist writing foreign correspondent column. Got it. So the, I'm going to start with my interpretation of my question. And you'll tell me if you agree with the general jest, and then we'll go country by country about what the United States is doing in those countries. Is that okay? Of course. Okay. So I'm going to start. What is at stake for those who want peace and non-U.S. intervention with China, Russia, Venezuela, Iran, and the Third World? So the first thing as we go into the debate tonight, which is going to be very frightening to me, is yes, I do think there are significant differences between Biden and Trump. But when we move to the question and we get away from Social Security and other things, when we get to U.S. intervention in the world, watch who's going to trip over the other to hate China more. I'm very frightened about that because, as I'll say, the United States brought China into its world, capitalist world, was so happy when... They could do that, but China is beating the United States at its own game, is far more advanced technologically, better environmental policies, and now the United States is claiming foul and saying that China is stealing our 
ideas, which is pretty ridiculous. So my view, and along with uh, uh, Obama saying that the United States would be a Pacific power and reinvent, reintervening in uh, in Asia, is a bipartisan imperialism that's very terrifying. On the issue of obviously uh, Russia, the United States is virtually NATO is virtually impinging on Russia. Uh, the fight over Ukraine was an effort in some way to protect itself. We don't have to like Russia to say that there's Russia and China are trying to create some kind of block against the United States' efforts to take over the world. Venezuela and Cuba are the last two independent voices in Latin America, and Iran is the only virtual non-U.S. client in the Middle East. The general concept which George Floyd would understand is I can't breathe, is the United States will not let anybody in the world breathe who's not under their thumb. That's my overall view. So, Reese, what do you think of that? And then we'll go, uh, what do you think of that perspective? And we'll go country by country. Yeah, I think that's, I, I agree with you. Um, there's, it operates on several levels. For the big countries like China and Russia, uh, the U.S., fears commercial competition. You know, supposedly we believe in free markets and um, whoever has the best products uh, survives and prospers and so on. In fact, when other countries come up with better products than the U.S., they use every dirty trick in the book, including planting spies in their uh, and spy apparatus in their computers and so on, to undermine them commercially and keep the U.S. corporations on top, or at least that's their effort closely combined with that is to promote scare tactics, which is that, oh my God, China is going to take our, fill in the blank, they're stealing our jobs, they're um, a major military power in the China Sea, they're um, the new enemy du jour, uh, you got to watch out, their, their TikTok is taking over the dance craze. That's right. I mean, everything, anything you can find negative <clears throat> about China um, is thrown into the pot and re-echoed through the mainstream media. And it has an impact on people in the United States, too, because people who would have had a fairly benign view of China, they may not have liked the Chinese economic political system, but now they're bombarded almost daily with alleged human rights abuses and stealing American technology and interfering in elections, most, if not all, of which is made up uh, or exaggerated. Yeah, and just to say there a minute, Reese, that, you know, this country has a long history of causing every war and yet paying almost no price for it. So you have a country that is it by itself, in my opinion, pro-imperialist. Too many forces by now, all the police, all the prison guards, all the military bases inside the United States, all the defense contractors and military contractors, they've cons- and then all the white fascists. So the hatred of others, the desire to go, almost the desire to go to war, is scary. You know, I mean, so it's everything you said, right? T- tell them the TikTok story. This is very important because Trump forced a Chinese-based company, as I understand it, to sell to. to sell its adjunct uh, TikTok. Did it go through to either Oracle or Walmart? Or so tell us that story, because uh, <laughs> okay. So there's this app, 
It's very popular in the United States. It's very popular around the world. <clears throat> it's owned by a Chinese company. Ironically, it's not in China. It's not allowed to be used <laughs> in China. Okay, with this? Yeah. Yet, and what it, it's mainly, it's called TikTok, and it's mainly known for videos of dance moves. I'm not, I'm not right, making these right. up. Teenagers and others get on, film themselves, singing, dancing, doing wild steps, and they go viral, and everybody has a good time. Well, almost overnight, the Trump administration decided this was a major national security threat. <laughs> I mean, maybe the Chinese were going to be learning new dance steps or <laughs> right. getting ahead in the world of video singing. I don't know. But the argument was, oh, this program could collect data on American users, which could then be used for some nefarious purpose, which they never exactly explained. Ignoring the fact that American companies, every time you use an app in a U.S.-owned company, they're collecting massive amounts of data. Of course, that's right. And we know, that they, we know what they're using it for, everything from legal, you know, quote-unquote legal efforts to... Um, you know, sell you products to all kinds of nefarious activities to influence your uh, buying habits, to uh, deep in, dig into your psyche, and all kinds of stuff. Far more dangerous than any Chinese company has ever um, been proven or even indicated that they do. So Trump decides to turn it into campaign time. He's, he's part of an anti-China campaign in general. So he says they're a national security threat by executive order, not by vote of Congress or anything else, by executive order, this privately held company must sell itself to an, and become American-owned company. Right. And he goes to Oracle. Uh, well, actually, they went to Microsoft. They did various kind of, kind of things along the way. But the latest iteration was um, to go to Oracle and to Walmart and to sell them uh, a share in TikTok. The courts have ruled so far that that's illegal and have blocked it. That's the latest development. Now, who knows, once the decision is appealed, what, what will happen. Um, there's a lot of controversy. The, but it really reveals and tears away the mask that, oh, the U.S. just works for national security purposes. What they were doing was there's a highly effective, very popular benign product that some other country was selling, which we didn't want them to do. And we wanted that money and the revenues and the profits to go to a U.S. company. So by decree, the President of the United States says, you have to sell your company to this company over here, which just happens to be owned by the United States. So Hold on, Jenny's got a question. Go ahead. Well, not a question, but also the the thing I think about because I do the social media for the Strategy Center and for Voices from the Front Lines is that culture is also another form of organizing. And so, you know, give I don't think China has any type of, I mean, they're not doing TikTok in their own country. Uh, but any way that Trump can stop black people from seeing Chinese, another, you know, independent people of color as any way friendly, I think he's going to do it. Um, and I need to do a lot more study, but I think do think about the time of the, the you know, the, you know, the, I don't know what to call it, the sunrise of the, the communist movement here in the United States and how close it was to Russia and China and, you know, Chinese and black people working together for against the United States. And so I think that's a really beautiful thing. I said that right into the mic. There you go. No, I, I agree with you that culture plays an important role in this. 
I often offer the example that, you know, imperialism is an all-inclusive system. It's not just economics and profit for corporations. It's political, it's military, it's cultural. So the U.S. invades a country to put a part country in power, a government in power that controls the oil wells, that sells the oil to the United States, that allows U.S. military bases there or nearby in order to protect the profits of the companies making the oil. And then they, some of the money goes to movie companies, TV companies, record and recording right. industry to produce culture to take, teach you to hate your own country. Wow. That this yes. feeling of your oil is legitimate because the United States has a superior culture and you don't. Wow. Um, Reese, that was great. Uh, this is Eric Mann. You're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. You can always listen to the show if you're not able to get it to, right at this moment. Uh, on our website, Voices from the Frontlines, we'd love you.com. We'd love you to check out the uh, podcast. It's on SoundCloud. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple. Uh, we're trying to build up the podcast, and especially if you're listening now, uh, you're going to get, if you're on our list, we're going to put the the show comes out in about a day through an email with a link to the podcast. Help us build the podcast as well, and send me any thoughts at eric at voices from the com. I'm very glad we had that inter interjection from Channing Martinez, who is both the co-host of Voices and the director of organizing at the Strategy Center. Uh, but Channing to talk about how just a, that's a very good point, that even if black people are on TikTok, if they think it's Chinese, they may have a pot. God forbid, we can't allow that. And then Reese's very important discussion of the ideology, the cultural assault of imperialism, creating self-hatred among the oppressed uh, to create the perception, first, as he said, that the United States steals your oil, and then it steals your culture as well. So he was still on top of his game. And uh, Peter, any thoughts about the conversation that you just overheard? And then I have some uh, I, have, I have a good... You know, I, I wish I'd had the opportunity to talk to Reese about China. Um, it's, I think, I'm actually reminded as I was um, uh, as listening to it of a passage from Dateline Havana, which dealt with the, uh, his, I think, the one book of his that I'm most familiar with. And it's, although it was written a dozen years ago, I think it's still just right on the money in terms of its understanding of what's happening in Cuba, a very nuanced understanding. Um, but he has a, a hilarious passage in Dateline Havana. Uh, it's, it's pure Reese, where he takes a serious issue and just makes it side-splittingly funny without watering down his analysis in the slightest, just to point out the absurdity of the, uh, of the boycott, uh, the economic sanctions that the United States has had in place against Cuba ever since, you know, well, when I was about 12 years old, actually, and I'm 73 now, uh, and which continues to be a real um, millstone around the neck of the people of Cuba, but it has had absolutely no impact whatsoever on uh, uh, the, the politics there. Um, it's just a lot of needless human suffering. But I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. If, I don't want to talk too long on this. Cause you've got other things to do. But um, 
uh, at some point, if I could read this passage from Dateline Havana, it's, it's yeah, hilarious. do that. That'll be no. This is great. That's a great. Uh, yeah. And in it fact, we have a, a, a strategy in Seoul Bookstore. When you come this Saturday from 10 to 4, uh, go on the website, thestrategycenter.org. You'll see all the information about the Revolutionary Saturday block parties. Uh, we're going to order copies of Dateline Havana for our bookstore because it's still an important uh, book, and it's also a way to commemorate our brother Reese. Go ahead, Peter. That's a great thing to do. Okay. Uh, this is about six paragraphs worth, and I'll sure. try to no, be... Sure. No, enjoy. Uh, d- d- take your time. Okay. So, uh, he's talking about uh, Ben Truhaft is the son of leftist attorney Bob Truhaft and muckraking journalist Jessica Mitford. In 1995, he launched a campaign to get Americans to donate pianos to Cuba, dubbed Send a Piano to Havana. His campaign highlighted the absurdity of the embargo by rigorously testing its provisions. He's been causing grief to government authorities ever since by combining the best of Mahatma Gandhi and Groucho Marx. His plan was simple. The embargo has an exception for humanitarian assistance. He applied to the Department of Commerce to ship pianos to Cuba on humanitarian grounds. For some still unexplained bureaucratic reason, his application was forwarded to the Department's Office of Nuclear and Missile Technology (laughs) Controls. Within a month, he had permission to ship pianos. Had I asked to ship tow missions to Iraq, Truhaft told me cheerily, they probably would have approved it right away, but pianos took a few extra weeks. He also had to promise not to use the pianos for torture or human rights abuses. <laughs> How could pianos abuse human rights? Truhaft quotes a journalist who wrote of his case, none of the pianos will be painted white, have candelabras placed on them, or be played by anyone wearing a sequin jacket. <laughs> Those of you who are a little too young to remember Liberace probably won't get that joke, but it had me rolling in the aisles. At one point, Truhaft had considered working with his disabled friend Danny McMullen to find orthopedists to send prosthetic devices to Cuba. Truhaft said he would put it under our commerce license and call it Arms for Cuba. However, the idea never had any legs, <laughs> and so forth. That's that's classic Reese Ehrlich. Um, he... Uh, Whenever he could get away with it, he would work gags like that into the into the pages of Unity as well. I remember once he devoted a whole page of the cultural section of the paper to an interview that he claimed to have conducted with E.T., uh, which he said was uh, took place high on the Hollywood Hills. And uh, <laughs> it, there was a 10-year-old uh, girl whose parents had worked on the paper who was, ex- who was just totally stuck on E.T., had an obsession with it, and she was very, very indignant about that article. Uh, but the rest of us thought it was quite funny, and it made the paper, that sort of thing made the paper very readable without, as I said, watering down its politics in the slightest. Well, I'm going to give you another side of Reese, uh, his harder line side, uh, which is a good side, you know. So uh, here's a story. Uh, I'm working with Reese, and I have, at back then, we used to call them contacts. I hate that word now. I don't ever use that about another human being, but... This was a person who was like a bourgeois, petty bourgeois uh, professional in L.A. with a big ego, but who was somewhat trying to be friendly to the league. And my job was to recruit the person, but the assignment was to work with the person on a review of the film Reds. Uh, So we both watched the film Reds. I love the film to this day. you have to remember it was done by Warren Beatty, who is, yeah. uh, I think, does overall a terrific job, but he's a, 
an individual. He's not a communist, and he's not anybody who has any collective understanding of the world. So the end of Reds shows the beginning of some so-called disenchantment of uh, John Reed, who is the the central character, uh, when he goes into the Middle East, basically, and ostensibly does talk about a national liberation movement in the Middle East, which is good politics, and ostensibly the, the Soviet commissar already says, no comrades, it's a class struggle. I don't think anybody could get that understanding, <laughs> very few people. But the point was, I thought the film was excellent, and I thought the Soviet Union was excellent, even though we were by then very anti-Soviet. But I certainly am a big supporter of the Russian Revolution with great admiration. So I'm working with my contact now. And he decides that the purpose of the film is it proves communism is no good. I'm going, oh, for God's sake. So I'm working with him. I finally convince him, all right, I get it. The Soviet, the Russian Revolution was a good thing. And he wants to get a few sentences in there in some way critical of the revolution in some vague way. Uh, I sent it to Reese. Reese says, we're not publishing this. We cannot allow any criticism of the Russian Revolution. I said, Reese, you gave me this assignment. This dude is hard to work with. Give me these two sentences, please. It's a very good article, Reese. It's totally pro-Soviet. I am having a. I've been through three drafts with this guy. He says no. It's got to go out. Cut it. So I go back to the guy, and of course he's upset and he wants to quit. And so I don't think the piece ever ran. I, I, I'm going to go back if there are the full archives. I'll see. I would very doubt it. So 10, 20 years later, Reese shows up at the Labor Community Strategy Center where I'm organizing and. Uh, his son Jason is considering being some kind of an intern at the Strategy Center. And I'm very happy to see Reese. I have nothing but great memories of him. And he says, let me start by, I want to apologize about that whole Reds <laughs> review. Where was I coming from? Oh, my God, Eric, you were, you were killing yourself to make it work. But the thing people don't understand is we laugh because we were earnest. You know, I mean, it wasn't like he was totally wrong. I was right. We, we don't come at it. There's a lot of people from Line of March and other people who are very bitter about their experience. They want to tell you how bad the communist movement is. This prove, It doesn't prove anything. It just proved that he was an editor trying to maintain the political line. I'm an organizer. Yes, he should have <laughs> let me get the damn review in, but we weren't sitting there to hash old wounds and abuses. We were laughing. I made plenty of mistakes during that period, but we were proud of the work we did. And we were friends, and now obviously he thought highly enough to me to recommend his son to work with us. He and I stayed very close friends. We worked together. He helped me on a book contract. And as you see, we're still, six months ago, dear friends listening to the show and being on the show. So the thing I want to say not just about Reese and Jeannie and, and you, Peter, and, and so many others, is that instead of thinking about the new communist movement, which was made up of so many different conflicting groups under that name, many of which were overwhelmingly white, by the way, just think about the League of Revolutionary Struggle and, and study 
which I'm going to do more writing about in my book, by the way. What an amazing experiment it was. And the quality of the people it attracted, it attracted the best and the brightest of the anti-war movement, of the black movement, of the Asian Pacific Islander movement, of the Chicano movement. Everybody who came in had already accomplished a lot. And we came to communism as the extension of our lives, not the reinvention of our lives, but both, or maybe both, the extension and reinvention, because it was a qualitative leap. You know, we were making tremendous sacrifices. We were paying, I worked in an auto factory for 10 years, which I loved. Uh, I raised money all the time for the strategy center. Do you know that Leanne and I gave $500 a month to the league? Uh, as our dues, $6,000. I went back and checked out how much that would be in present dollars. Oh, my God, twenty-five dollars or $30,000. And no, it wasn't tax deduction. There was no communist tax deduction at that time. Uh, nope. And we did it willingly. That's what you don't understand. We were fine. We were auto workers. We were making really good money. And there was another people, like maybe you, Peter, and Reese, working for the party. How were they going to live? How were they going to eat? Through the dues, you know, so we, we practiced actual redistribution of wealth inside our own culture. 818-985-5735, 818-985-5735, especially if you knew Reese Ehrlich and if you uh, work with him, read his books, we'd love to hear from you. If not, Peter and I have plenty to, to, to talk about. Uh, what do you think of that story, Peter, and that? That whole period? Uh, uh, well, I remember, actually, if I'm not mistaken, Eric, we did run a review of Red's. Oh, my God. Reese Ehrlich. And he said pretty much what you... Wait a minute, said. by Reese Ehrlich? And struggling with that other guy, you know, that you were working Oh, my God, you took my damn review. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a bad review. No, I'm God. sure it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got to go find that. <laughs> Well, I just want to say that people who want to see what kind of stuff went into Unity, you can go to a website called Unity Archives Project, and uh, some of the best uh, reporting that went into the paper is, is posted there, uh, along with a lot of other information about the league. So, you know, check it out if you're interested or curious. I'm very Say it again. It's, it's called Unity Archives Project dot something? I think it's dot org. Okay. See. Well, we'll find Unity Archives project. project. Just Google it; it'll come up. That's fantastic. Um, you know what I'd like to do, Peter? Uh, this is Eric Mann. I'm listening. I'm in conversation with Peter Shapiro. We're talking about our very good friend uh, Reese Ehrlich, who just recently passed, a very major figure in in both the New Communist Movement and in in the world. You know, friend of trying to uh, protect Iran's self-determination, written some great books. You can go back on Voices, by the way, and just uh, we have a terrific website, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. I'm happy to say I went on there. I just uh, typed in Reese Ehrlich, and at least two of the shows came up. And uh, so thank you, Channing Martinez, and for maintaining the uh, such a good archive. Um, Peter, I want you to take a minute about the LRS um, uh, historiography you're doing right now. Uh, 
I listened to, I, I don't know if I shared this with you yet, but I you sent me a link to uh, the International Hotel Group, the Ewar Kuhn. Phenomenal stories, of, of course, people our age now, all of whom continue to feel that that was a terrific experience for them. Uh, tell me a little bit about the work you're doing to try to reconstruct the LRS uh, history well, at this point in history. We started off doing an oral history project, and it proved kind of tricky to do. And uh, what happened was that uh, Pam Tao Lee, who was, uh, I don't know how to begin to describe her, she's arguably the most phenomenal organizer I've ever met in my life. And Yeah, I was going to say a giant. Yeah, a giant, and she, you know, she's still at it. Yeah. Has not slowed down one iota since when she was in her 20s. Uh, and she was one of the founders of the Chinese Progressive Association in San Francisco, which is still going strong. She's Anyway, she got the idea of, instead of having one-on-one interviews, of having, like, roundtables, getting people who are involved in a particular struggle or a particular area of work, getting together and just sort of sharing their experiences and kind of bouncing their uh, their uh, their thoughts off each other. And I, I found it a much more satisfactory way of getting at stuff. Um, and the first one was about the iHotel. Uh, which was a really epic struggle that took place in San Francisco uh, to try to stop the destruction of uh, low-rent housing uh, right on the edge of San Francisco's downtown, which had formerly been at the heart of you know San Francisco's Filipino community. Had a lot of elderly uh, Chinese uh, former sailors and Filipino sailors living in it. Uh, um, and uh, that struggle went on for 10 years. Finally, the eviction took place, and that link I sent you had some just hair-raising descriptions of eviction night when the, the mounted police just, there was a human barricade around the hotel, several thousand people linked arms and tried to prevent the police from breaking through and evicting the tenants. And they pretty much held their ranks together for several hours before the police finally broke through. And there's some just amazing descriptions of that night uh, on, on, on those links. And I'm hoping that we can get them to a point where people can have access to them. And there are several others as well. Uh, I want to do one featuring those of you who worked in the auto industry because that was a very complex, fascinating, difficult area of work trying to stop the plant shutdowns that were just sweeping across the country in the early 80s. Um, I don't think we ever really came up with a satisfactory strategy to stop them that worked. A lot of people applied their minds to it. Nobody really came up with anything that was successful. But I do think that the Van Nuys campaign, which you, Eric, were involved in, was probably about as good a, an attempt as any. Well, so wait, wait. It's very important. Uh, it was successful. It was the only successful campaign. That's, it's just very important to understand that I built a movement along with Mark Masaoka and Pete Beltran that kept the Van Nuys plan open for 10 years against General Motors. And I wrote a yeah. whole book about it called Taking on General Motors. So we'll come back to that, but I just want to say the whole yeah. strategy center comes out of a 10-year campaign that we, we were supposed to be closed in 1982, and they did not close it until 1992. So, it lasted long. Yeah, yeah, 10 years just like the I Hotel. This is what I want to do. Uh, Channing just texted me. It is uh, Unity. Uh, uh, let's see. It's, it says uh, unityarchiveproject.org which yeah. is great. Um, I want to make sure that we go out with Reese, okay? So what I'm going to do is this. Peter, you, by the way, you have a very good radio voice. Um, 
Let's let's spend the last seven or eight minutes listening to to Reese keep talking because his life continues. And uh, the good thing about being an author, the good thing about being on radio and TV and having your stuff recorded, is we'll keep Reese's work going because his life a lot is his work, our, our our lives, our our work. That's how we're defined to be abuse. And Peter, it's really been a pleasure. Tell us again the name of your book, which I'm also going to get. Uh, and you and I are going to, of course, continue the conversation offline about getting a whole group of auto workers to participate as well. Sure. The book is actually called Song of the Stubborn 1000, the Watsonville Canning Strike, 1985 to 1987. That was another amazing struggle. And actually, I have to say that one of the rank-and-file leaders of that strike uh, which lasted 18 months, during the course of which not one worker crossed the picket line. Wow. And they eventually forced the owner of the plant into bankruptcy, and then they won a contract from the new owner uh, after a five-day wildcat strike. It was an amazing struggle. Uh, the league was deeply involved in it. And I have to say that the rank-and-file, one of the rank-and-file leaders of that strike, Gloria Bethancourt, uh, she also passed away in February. And... Um, you know, she was one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. She also, I would not have been able to write that book without her help. You know, she took me around Watsonville, introduced me to all of her fellow strikers, and then translated for me during some very long and complicated interviews because I don't have Spanish. And um, huh. I was just, you know, I was more, even more in awe of her, you know, uh, reconnecting with her 30 years later than I was during the strike. And I was plenty in awe of her then. So, you know, presente to her, too. Well, I think for those of us who are fortunate enough to be alive by just pure random luck, have real obligation to keep the work of those who have passed going because they live through us and then they live through shows like this. I've heard nothing but great things about your book, and after I read it, we'll have you on and we'll have that conversation. Sure. So with that, why don't we listen to our friend Reese and we'll just let Reese talk until... You give me the signal, D'Angelo, okay? And uh, I'm saying, you know, I'll say goodbye in the last minute, but this is, again, to honor Reese Ehrlich, who just recently passed away, a tremendous anti-racist, anti-imperialist fighter and author and just very fine human being, by the way. Uh, I don't know if there's a communist word for mensch, but he was one. So, he was a man, and right? he was Jewish. He wouldn't have minded being called that. <laughs> uh, so, and, and so are you, I assume, and so am I, so... We did something good. Uh, thank you, Peter. It's really been a pleasure to get to know you through this process. Sure. Take care. All right. Let's hear Reese Ehrlich. And that's exactly the game they play with China, which is except China ain't going for it because they they laugh at they talk when the U.S. talks about how old its culture is. You know, we go back 200 years in the U.S. That's something really old. That's that's like barely anything in China. Well, let me ask you this, Reese, because. Uh, let's talk about Russia and China and the, is it called the Belt and Road Project? How's, uh, I listen to a lot of business shows and like, you know, listen to a lot of things. There's, there's a growing respect and even, you know, people are saying that while Trump is worrying about TikTok, that China and Russia are going into Africa or building good relationships with European countries. You know, we always talk about the, what all the bad things the United States is doing. How significant, and since I'm hopeful, how hopeful are you about Russia and China being able to sustain just any resistance 
to the U.S. efforts to take over the world? Well, first of all, it's important to understand they really are two different economic of course. Political systems. Um, they are allies of necessity, right. along with the other countries you mentioned, Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, all of them have very different economic political systems and so on. But they're all under attack from the United States, and they're, and they're grouping together for that reason, and understandably so. Um, China's Belt and Road policy, I mean, think about this. If the United States went around the world and built massive construction projects, bridges, dams, airports, highways, trains, things that were badly needed, and they were done on the basis of low interest loans or, or no loans at all. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I don't, didn't realize my phone was going to be on here. Um, the, uh, and if the United States was doing that, it would be hailed around the world as a great success for soft power or for U.S. Right. economic system. When China does it, and that's exactly what they've been doing now for quite a long time, oh, it's a sign of their nefarious activity to take over um, and, and uh, dominate the world, uh, and they're, putting, they're, they're creating death, uh, debt, meaning um, they're forcing these countries to take loans which they can't pay back. They come up with all kinds of reasoning, but in fact you dig into it, and the vast majority of they have made some mistakes and there have been errors, but on the whole, the countries receiving this aid are very thankful and very grateful because there's no other way they would be able to afford those kind of projects. And Russia, to a lesser degree, um, is, is doing the same things in the, kind of the area of its influence, the areas of the old Soviet Union, and Eastern Europe, to the extent they can. China is much more of a global scale, as you mentioned, China, uh, Africa, uh, parts of uh, Asia, and even uh, parts of uh, South America. Well, let me ask you this, Reese. Uh, you, you, I, mean, I want to say a lot. This is Reese Ehrlich we're talking to, is an old friend, and uh, he was actually in Oakland in 1965. He forgot that. He thinks it's 1968, but I saw him earlier. So the, po the point is that, uh, you know, your memory is a little off, but I know better. But anyway, I'm saying he's got a long movement history and a, a really good guy. And he's done a, a, He's decided to focus for many, many years as a writer and columnist and observer on international affairs, which is great. So he's got a lot of different books he can tell you about. So here's the question. Uh, let's talk about Africa for a minute. I mean, uh, I remember when... Oh, God, when the South African, you know, Communist Party came to power and the, what tried to and the ANC came to uh, at least, you know, electoral power, not economic power. Very quickly, I remember Mbeki saying we have to create an alternative to African pessimism that it's almost like the abandoned continent now, you know. Uh, what's been the history of China and Africa? How long, you know, what history do you know of? When did, when was the primary uh, initiative begun? What's it like now? So a lot of our listeners are very, you know, interested in Africa, as am I. Sure. Um, quick footnote. I, I agree with you. I was indeed in Berkeley in 1965. <laughs> I was referring to the stop the I know, Reese. Uh, it's a sense of humor. It's a joke, Reese. I get, I get the point. <laughs> oh, a joke. Okay. Yeah, you see, it was a sense of yeah, irony we, there. We folks are way too serious. Okay. All right, got it. Um, Africa and ANC and so on. So China 
in the 60s, um, long before it became the kind of economic power that it is today, was engaged in uh, road and rail and other construction projects in Africa. There was the Tanzam Railroad, the Tanzambia Railroad, if you may remember. Um, They uh, express solidarity. They have wide trade relations um, with uh, Angola and with other countries in southern Africa. Um, And they, um, I think the key thing there is that China gets a bad rap for um, exploiting workers and allegedly engaging in human rights abuses in certain countries and so on. Um, They engage in commercial trade that is not exploitive. That is, they're not going in with the idea of owning and dominating and controlling an entire industry like the U.S. or France or other imperialist countries do. Uh, They are, in most cases, one of a number of uh, countries involved in exploring for oil, buying and selling at world prices, and uh, to the mutual benefit. We're going to end there, that China is working in Africa for mutual benefit. I ask everybody to go online, and if you go on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com, you can listen to the rest of this great conversation. Thank you to Peter Shapiro. Thank you, Reese. Thank you, Liz Ehrlich, his wife. Uh, Thank you, Leanne, for all the work we all did together as comrades. Check us out on SoundCloud, on Spotify. Help us build the podcast. Send me an email at eric at Voices from the Frontlines. Presente, Jean, Presente, Reese. Uh, Those of us alive, our job is to keep the work going. That's our job. See you next week at 3 o'clock. Take good care and all power to the people. Thank you, D'Angelo Jones. It really means a lot that you're here. Take good care, everybody. Too few to mention I did what I had to do.